right, so we are here today to talk about A Crisis of Purpose, uh, episode three. This is a meaty one, and what better place to do it? We're sitting here in the office of Miles Salisbury. The, uh, uh, this, this room looks like it's for finding your direction, for healing, for getting your mental and spiritual faculties organized. There's a lot of a lot of uh, powerful messaging here. We've got uh, medical books. We've got philo- books on philosophy. We've got certifications. We've got art. We've got uh, tomes from uh, every kind of author under the sun, and we've got quotes from uh, Jocko Willink and even the Black Mamba. Uh, Colby Bryant. So there's a lot of there's a lot of good energy here to help us figure out our purpose. And, and then electroshock therapy again is in the back. That's right. Okay. So if we if we feel stuck, we can just unstick ourselves with some electrodes. Shock ourselves. So um, the a crisis of purpose, which is like a a, a topic that every person man, woman, child, old, young, has gone through uh, for at least a second or two or, or many moments in their lives. Um, it's certainly a, a conversation in, in the United States because of the great independence and um, individuality that we have. The, a, lot of, a lot of people don't feel a sense of community or um, an overarching sense of purpose. And uh, I've struggled with this you've struggled with this so um i'm 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 turning 40 you're 46 have you dealt with this in the past present like what's your experience with uh finding your purpose um deciding which direction you want to go yeah so i think this hits a few times in life it depends on what we're talking about um and it's ironic we're sitting in a room where this is a place where this comes up a lot uh, in the in the therapy room, or however you want to call it. Um, when you said that, I first thought of the way Dr. James Hollis talks about it. He jokingly says the first half of life is largely a mistake. We're just screwing things up, learning, failing forward. We're checking the boxes life tells you to do, like go to school, get a job, get a retirement plan, blah, blah, blah. And then the second half of life hits, and it's what he calls uh, um, either midlife crisis or midlife transition. And you got to decide what that is. If you're doing it consciously and listening to what the psyche is trying to beckon you towards, that's a lot harder. But that's uh, that's on purpose. A midlife uh, transition crisis is when you let the ego take the seat and you trade up your wife for the trophy wife or you hate a job or you think I'll just work twice as hard I'll I'll do this until I'm 65 and then I'll retire and then I'll live (laughs) but then but then what right you retire and then what then who are you what are you doing and a lot of people get really depressed after they've played like 90 rounds of golf and they're like who am I what am I doing a lot of people actually die of heart attacks and like there's something going on there with the physical body so you gotta pay attention to that usually hits 
between you know, 35 and 65 for people that second half of life thing. But your first one hits when you're when you're younger. Like, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? That whole thing. Like, that's that's your first uh, little taste of what purpose and meaning is. Like, what am I doing? Why am I here? And the culture around you, your parents, will kind of dictate those terms if you're not careful. Like, my dad said you're going to college, and I wanted to be in the Marines. Should have listened to my inner self, right? You're, and that's what. You would say, and James Hollis says, when you listen to the psyche, what is it beckoning you towards? What do you, what wants to come through you into the world? And what wants to, what, what are we doing here? What gives you joy? What, how do you want to help others? You know, whatever that is for you. Well, um, yeah, your first half of your life is largely a mistake. It depends on like what your definition of success is, but I, I mean, I think a lot of people would agree with you. And it's really a relief to hear very successful people echo that because when you're, we, we all think we're going to be the one that like has the self-awareness or <clears throat> of course, when I was younger, I thought I would be the one that would navigate around a big pitfall. And, uh, because I'd shown some wisdom in some areas of my life, I, I was like, Oh, I'm the person who sees the, the minefield and I avoid it. And, um, and then absolutely not, you know, I, um, Scott Galloway, um, you know, who is you know, very, very popular right now. He's pushing 60. I think he's going to be 60 this year. We talked about his first marriage basically happening because his friends were getting married. He was dating someone nice. Exactly. He was successful. It seemed like a logical next step. Logical. It felt like if he didn't do it, he was avoiding responsibility or falling behind or whatever. And, um, you know, he married a good person. It was a bad fit. And a lot of us do. I did that. Happens. Yeah. And I, I think um, I, I'm shocked at how easy, whether it's choosing a career, choosing a partner, choosing a place to live, some, some small decisions, some large decisions, how we, we borrow, we, we, we don't even, we're not even making decisions off of our own value systems. We're making them off of other people's value systems or what we believe them to be. And hell, sometimes they're not even navigating off of a real no. GPS system. They're just they're just also in the same sort of life momentum and terrified of being alone or uncertain or not taking the job in Denver. And they so they do it, and then it ends up being a painful experience. Yes. Now, I think that that will lead you somewhere. I'm a, a, my, my spiritual belief is that it's all for it's all happening for you. Hmm. To, to help wake you up, mm. but uh, it doesn't feel like that in the moment. Hell no. <laughs> so um, um, I got very lucky in that, like, <clears throat> I kind of the things that I was doing or was doing that were high, that were that were adventurous. I had I, I had a, a sort of something going on inside of me, um, self self interest mostly. That I was either not, I didn't feel good at, like, you know, when I was a young uh, sergeant in the army, I didn't feel good at my job. If I had felt more competent and confident, I might have done 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. But because I, w I felt mediocre and frustrated all the time, and my job required that some or all of my time would be spent in, uh, you know, a waterless beach, uh, I, I didn't want that. So it was painful, 
I wasn't good at it. It was cool. Like, it was a romantic job. But, like, in hindsight, I think, you know, like, people would say, like, oh, you had a good gig. You were, you know, you were, you had an impact. You were doing something, um, you know, uh, important. But it didn't feel that way to me. I felt like a fish out of water. I felt like I didn't belong. The culture of the Army was different than my personal culture at the time. Um, and so I had this feeling of not belonging and not being good. So that it was easy for me to exit. And I kept looking for those things that were a little bit more instant gratification to give me some payoff to feel like, Ooh, this is fun and I'm good at it. And, um, fitness was that for me. And, um, even though it, I didn't, I it couldn't make a living on it when I started, I was like, Ooh, this is so much fun. I'll figure that part out. And then I, I swam in that water. But um, if if I had been a little bit older or a little bit wiser or a little bit more successful, it could have been easily the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it just happened to me. And I and who knows what you know what if I had two lives to lead, what that other branch would have turned into. But right. um, I'm very happy with the way things have gone, and I have grown in all kinds of you know, very important ways to me and also like health, um, being a lot more, um, important to me than being a subject matter expert in, um, you know, counterterrorism, of very specific Asian and East Asian, you know, uh, militant groups. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of, was a, a rabbit of, you know, pursuing a rabbit hole. I didn't really want to like live in. Mm. all the time Mm. um so it was a little bit out of alignment for my personal identity the role i wanted to play Mm. my values i hadn't that hadn't come through yet so i really i really didn't know i did a lot of the army values were my values and then some of them weren't Mm. um and then uh but my curiosity was not being satiated because even though i liked contributing I didn't really like the, the role I was in, the job. So I wasn't, like, happy, like, ooh, great. The day-to-day. Yeah, the day-to-day was tough. So, mm-hmm. and, I, and I had to do a lot of PowerPoint, and that's not my strength, oh, spreadsheets. Death yeah. by PowerPoint, yeah. Yeah, it was, I know, I mean, like, uh, it makes me happy to hear other other veterans talk about fistfights over PowerPoint. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, people were about to get murdered. People were going to get, I might have been one of the ones to get murdered because I was not good at PowerPoint. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so pain motivation was a big part of me getting out of that and getting toward like being pain motivated to get into something that I wanted to be a part of, which was Mm. the health and fitness industry and, uh, nutrition and personal training. And that led me to find my community and that started me on the quest to unearth my values mm. and um, jump into different roles in that within that. Um, pain, so pain motivation. Pain motivation. Pain yeah. fear. Does motivate. I needed to. I, w- I was not happy with everything I was doing was getting under my skin and uh, my day to day and and I wasn't. I wasn't playing to my strengths. And then as soon as I started to get some of that alignment, like it felt so easy. It felt so easy to read another book on strength and conditioning. It felt so easy to go to another course. It felt so easy to, uh, when I wanted to take a course that I couldn't afford, I figured it out. I, I figured it out. I, I literally 
I sold my concealed carry. I had a, I was a big weapons guy. I had, mm-hmm. I sold my concealed carry to pay for the plane ticket wow. because I was like, this is going to get me the ability to eventually someday come back and buy mm-hmm. another one. I know I can come back to this, but I need to go here to get better. And like, I, that's how committed mm-hmm. I was. And I was like, an even trade. I had a, you, you guys, I was driving a 66 Impala. All right. This freaking machine, jet black interior, jet black exterior, chrome and American muscle, 327. Damn. Blah, blah, blah. Two speed, (laughs) twin exhaust. God, I look so good in that car. (laughs) Everyone would look so good in that car. It was so much fun to drive. And I sold it because to get the first and last in this personal training studio, it was really nice. I needed to have a few thousand dollars and a new shirt, a new certification. So I sold my car, my dope car, and it was also expensive to drive and there was some other problems. But I sold this beautiful freaking car so that I could get to where I needed to go. And I was I was committed to um to, to getting to to a different place in my life. Now at the time I didn't know you did you didn't have to cannibalize your life. I <laughs> I would have sold some some training and sold some product to get like to get in there. But um, at the time that was those were the tools I had and I was that's how committed I was. I knew mm-hmm. that that's where I wanted to be. That's a trailhead to purpose and meaning. Like when it feels good, are you willing to make those sacrifices? Do you just do it? That's a good. You know you're on the right path when that's happening. And that's that's a good indicator. Uh. Yeah, and I and I sometimes now like I see people and I, and and it, I I see them talk themselves out of commitment that's painful. It's like oh this will I'll have to tighten my belt or I'll have to yeah but what if it like changes your life like what if it exposes you to something you don't know exists? It will, by the way. I <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're going for here. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a midlife crisis. I mean that's the that's the thing like. The whole purpose is to jump into the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. To, yeah, to not. Mm-hmm. Sucks. It's scary. It's scary as fuck. But. So, um, when it comes to uh, your personal crisis of pur- purpose, um, and and mine and Miles Miles's and and anyone you know who's who's faced with this, like you want to get clear on um, what what itch you're trying to scratch. And there's a great diagram um, called the Ikigai? Ikigai Ikigai diagram. Japanese for purpose and meaning or something like that? Japanese for life purpose. Life purpose. And um, I'm going to look at this so I can read it off and you can Google it and it'll pop right up. Um, but the Ikigai diagram has four, four circles this Venn diagram and the one circle is what, what you love. One circle is what the world needs. One circle is what you can be paid for. And one circle is what you're good at. So that's playing to your strengths, playing to your passions and curiosity. Uh, the playing to what your community needs from you, or what the world needs from you, what's what the what the pain point is for the marketplace, what the what your opportunity is, um, what the what the opportunity is to fit in with your skills, and you know obviously what what can compensate you, and it's really easy to get stuck in 
one of those. A lot of people don't like to do things they're not good at. Um, a lot of people don't like to do things they don't get paid for. Um, and I've been I've been stuck in all of them, but the one that kept me trapped the longest was, um, and I couldn't because I needed money. I need I needed to stay focused on how to monetize my skill set. And not everything that you do that grows you and that like touches your heart is going to be something you're going to get paid for. But there was a time where I couldn't really look past that. Easy. Um, but I love that's a that's a great launch launch point. Um, for going deeper on what your personal purpose is and um, what you're good at, um, what what you can be paid for, um, what the world needs, um, and what you what you personally care about. Um, what you like a question that often like kicks people off is like, what would you do? What did you do when you were a kid for fun? Um, what would you do with your friends um, just to pass the time? What would you do if you had all the time and money in the world? How would you want to spend your time? That sort of leads people to what they care about the most, what 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 their what your personal curiosity is, what your personal passions are. And um, funniest thing, when uh, when I was in in Roseburg, Oregon, um, I never. Not only did we did I not know what personal training was or fitness, we had one gym. We had a YMCA. We had no trainers. There, I think there is another gym there now. There might be like an Anytime Fitness or something, but there were there wasn't personal trainers. There was no CrossFit. There were there were, there was none of that. It was it wasn't like, what I did and what my friends did. We worked out with each other, and I would go to another person's house who had a weight bench or something in their garage, and I would have them show me what they were doing, and then I would add that into my routine and I would make my friends work out with me whether they wanted to or not. It was just sort of the thing. Uh, I, I had a bunch of D and D friend, you know, friends. we get together and do role playing. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're Roseburg. Yeah. There's like stoplights and McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> we do it at McDonald's. There are multiple stoplights. It's 20,000 people. Um, but well, we were just nerds, and um, but I, what we, I would just say it's like before we play video games or before we do any RPG stuff, we're gonna lift, mm. and a hundred like all of them were like hell yeah, nice. <laughs> They're like that's exactly what we want to do. That's and a good combo right there. It's a great, great combo. Getting rare into- probably for those two don't intersect often. I would imagine. <laughs> no, that's that was my role. That was that was why I was there. I was there to make sure that people were benching. Mm. <laughs> and then you can geek out. That's right. Then you can geek out. So, um, so it found me, so my purpose found me unconsciously. It was fitness for me. was the first time I felt good. Like I had my own agency over my own experience. And like, I felt strong and confident when I was training and I would just read books on training and we talk about my origin story in another episode, but, um, it was, it was something that was important to me. I made other people do it. It was just something that. I was so fired up about it, I got everybody around me fired up about it automatically. Mm-hmm. And um, Good trailhead. Yeah, it was great. And I didn't even know that that could be a job. Like, I, I in the Army, it was an extra duty to uh, help people get in shape who were injured or couldn't meet the Army standard for some reason. And it's just something like wherever I went, I was always just training people. And just I wanted to make people feel good. I wanted to help. I wanted to get early promotion. You know, so there's opportunities there, yeah, yeah. but 
but I, it was just always a role that I had filled, and I didn't know there was any money associated with it until much later. Isn't that interesting? Or is that cheesy saying, do the work that you love and the money will come? I mean, sometimes that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, yes. And, and the problem with that is, is people take this shit a little too literally because, like, like a personal trainer, like, I, I never hired a personal trainer until I'd been a personal trainer for years and wanted to learn faster. And then I would hire, I'd buy 10 sessions from another trainer and be like, okay, how are you warming these people up? What are you doing with them? What are you, what, 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 what's your applications? How are you, how are you, how, what's your sequencing? What's going smart, on here? Smart, smart. Yeah. And, uh, and so once I did that three or four times, I started to realize that nobody really knows that much. And then I started to go to different, <laughs> like different sources. But, um, I would never ha- like in the, it never in my mind was it like product market fit where I was like, Oh, everyone wants personal training. Like I would never buy personal training cause I was so passionate about, and I would read the books, the books I got by from the library. This was not the internet. Like I was reading real books. <laughs> paper. So paper. So, so for me, I was like, Oh, anybody could do this. This is not even a, this wasn't a, a revenue stream. This was something that's like, Oh, we could all do this. Um, and um, later on, I learned that people hired trainers. But even then, if you're somebody who's who's thinking, well, my skill set, it's not worth very much. If you look online, and we were talking about this last time, the the, the salary of a personal trainer is quite low. It's like $39,000 a year, which not knocking anybody making that or less, but it's difficult to raise a family on that if you're trying to be independent. Um it, that's not motivation enough if you don't really love what you're doing. No way. So if you're like if you're like googling things to see what you could get paid, you're probably not on the right. You're not on the right wavelength yet. Mm-hmm. You may you may be close, but um, that's that's not. There's always a way, right? Because then if you go, well, maybe I can't be you know training my, but I could be a gym owner. I could hire personal trainers, mm-hmm. right? I could you know I could. Uh, be a, a PT assistant. I could be a, a phys- like. There's all kinds of different mo- modalities, just ways. Mm-hmm. But if you're focused on your compensation first, that's probably not the most. You want to build your house on. That's right. Yeah. You're probably not at the at the right spot yet. Mm-hmm. That's an easy trap. It may make sense, but yeah, it's not gonna give you purpose and meaning. So um, you're. I was motivated because it felt it made me feel good. I could. I could, I, it, it cured something, it, it clicked, something clicked in me that was like, okay, this doesn't fix everything, but I feel better or stronger. I feel more me if I am lifting, if I'm doing this. What was your way into um, mental health? Intro to dance in college by accident. You never know what door will open up a completely different door, completely unrelated. There's a whole long story on how this happened, and I don't know if this episode we want to get into that. We can. It's more of the origin story. I love it. Well, well, so, but you, but you took a dance class, which because I had to for undergrad. Okay, so you were forced to take in like the sort of elective, supportive, yep, additional credit. Three, you had to do art, so you had to do three of the four. So I'd already done drawing, intro to theater, uh, and then it was down to music or dance. And music, you had to look around this huge-ass keyboard around campus and land and that shit. I was like, ah, it's down to dance, I guess. I, I'm an athlete. I can move. I hope it's not too you know, feminine, all the thoughts that a typical guy has and wear tutus and shit. And so I saw there was a 
a guy teacher this semester. He was new. I didn't know he was this famous uh, dancer from Broadway. How we got him, I have no idea. But he transformed the whole school. They have a whole dance program now because of him and his wife. Uh, so I chose it. And in walks this huge, ripped, black dude with dreads. And I'm like, fuck yeah, this is going to be cool. <laughs> and he was just this amazing lecturer. And he's talking about dance. And it was like he made it sound so cool. And I was just wrapped. And then uh, he... Um, held all the guys after dance the, after the uh, class was done. He was like, so I want to do a an all men's piece for the spring dance concert, which is huge on campus, sells out. Uh, it's a three-day event. Four diverters, and that's massive down there. And does anybody want to uh, do that? And then it was uh, crickets. What, what was the instructor's name? Daryl Thomas. He So he danced in a company called Palabolus. Uh, so, you know, Peter Atia. His personal trainer, Beth, whatever his name was, she danced in Palabolus. I wonder if they crossed over. Uh, hugely famous dance company. And his wife danced for Merce Cunningham, who's a famous dance Well, you said for whatever reason this da- this dance recital was very popular. And it, it's because of this guy's passion. Like, he got... It was... He fired up the community. He did, but it was it was big before he was there. Oh. Uh, yeah, I have no idea why. It was just established. And they only had a dance minor at the time, and now they have a major, and they have everything, because him and his wife plugged in with the other teachers who were also great and they just made this thing huge so he held all the guys after class and no one raised their hands because they're like why am I going to do that I just want to get through this class and I was like yeah I just want to get this class it sounds great but I don't want to do it and he's like alright I'll take away the 10 page paper of whoever wants to do this and unconsciously my hand raised because I didn't like writing papers back then little did I know I'd be going into psychology where all I did was write and I wrote a 350 page dissertation <laughs> If I would have known then what I was doing. Uh, so, so I volunteered, and he's like, and some other guys raised their hands. And he's like, all right, show up here at the um, main, there's a dance hall place where you can do um, rehearsal. Show up here at this time. And um, of all the courses on campus, only four guys showed up. I almost didn't show up. I almost taught myself at it. But I showed up, and four of us met, um, and he started talking to us, walking us through things, how to move, and it was like very masculine and strong and totally not what I thought dance was. Modern dance was completely different. I thought we were going to do ballet and stuff. That came later. <laughs> really hard. But it's the foundation. And so we did a men's piece, and I really liked it. And then I kept doing it, started attending more dance classes, made it my minor. And my major turned to psychology sort of at this time, too, because I had to declare a major. Um, and then he's like, do you want to... He started forming a, like a legit dance company that would tour and get paid. He said, you want to audition for that? I was like, oh, fuck. Um, so I did, and I, I made it in. And then it just got bigger and bigger. But he opened my mind to art, to expression. And out of that came out, who am I? Why am I here? What am I about? You know, introspection. I didn't really do that because I was told what to do, not let it out. And I got to let it out through my physical body, which was... The only way I did that was through sport before, which is cool, but it's like you're doing a sport. This was like, whatever, just get after it. And that got me thinking, and then I started getting into psychology and saw how that kind of interrelates when you get to know who you are. You can so wait a second, it. you toured as a dancer? Yeah, we actually got to go to like Hawaii, uh, a couple states. We, we almost went to Korea once. That company's gone everywhere now. I, mean, I only did it for like six years, but I was there for its inception. Um, and we got paid a little bit, but it was like, like real, it was like the, yeah. a real 
Yeah, you're pro. You get paid. You Te- technically, yeah. You're, you're pro. pro. They're much bigger now. But they, but they both dance for hugely famous dance uh, companies. Um, that could be a later episode if people are curious about that. That's fascinating to me still. Um, but that opened up. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have gone the path of psychology. Probably would have stayed with my. I was a corrections major. I was like, you know, since I'm not doing the military, I will, I'll do the FBI or something adjacent. And then that all switched. So what do you think was so powerful about um, how ex- the expression of dance that made you start to ask deeper questions to yourself? What about it? Yeah. So, like, do you remember, like, you, you get done with a practice or, I don't know, rehearsal or whatever, mm-hmm. and then you were, like, walking home, and you are like, hmm, what am I about? Like, to get, like get, go there uh, with me, as I want to know how that triggered the conversation. So it was sort of cumulative. It, didn't, it wasn't like a f- switch flipping. It was very iterative. Um, like, when you're moving your body, you have to create, like, um, you know, I went on to do choreography. That was the most fun, creating things. I got best choreography for the spring dance concert once. I got best male dancer twice. <laughs> Sounds like Chippendales or some shit. But it was like a legit work. Um, uh, yeah, it was a legit amount of work too. It was a lot of work, especially not like if you wanted to be a, a real dancer, you got to do that when you start with like four. And I started at twenty. <laughs> I should not have been where I was. No way. I got lucky. Um, only by sheer athleticism and then learning to like move my body in new ways, not rigid sports ways. Like you actually had to move in the way I was trying to avoid like perceivably effeminate ways. But also you can channel it into a masculine sense of movement. You know, it doesn't have it doesn't have to be split off. Like last time we talked about the yin and the yang, very much in both of those the way you move your body. And so in order to do that, you kind of have to check within yourself like. Who am I? What am I about? What am I expressing here? Especially when doing, like my favorite class was contact improvisation. There ain't no rules. You just run into somebody, you move with them, and you make these weird moves, and you come apart, and you hit up somebody else, and make these moves that come together. That's a great way to um, do choreography, because you just make up moves, and you, you video it, and if a cool move comes out of that, you take that, and you put it together with other moves into sequencing to make a whole dance piece. That was that was the most fun because um, you got to express and create. It's like, oh, I like to do that, or I like to roll on the ground, or I like to lift somebody up, or we lifted. You know, Palabolus was all about that kind of movement. Um, but it broke up that you have to have rules. It broke that up to pieces. Like mm-hmm. life was telling me what to do. I'm at school. My dad said, "Got to be here." I mean, I almost dropped out. It's like the school's too small. It's boring. Um, I dropped down to like six credits once and then schooling for my dad I was like um, below full time and like I guess something bad happens or something <laughs> he came down to make sure I was okay and was like playing video games I was depressed as fuck I was going to transfer to U of O because I was like I was like the ducks like go ducks and I almost did but had I not taken this dance class and got on because right after it said you need to do more I signed up for that dance class just randomly as I got it finish these core credits or whatever. And so that put me on um, that path. But yeah, moving yourself and expressing yourself, you have to introspect to go with them, like, what am I doing here? What am I creating? And what is the meaning? Back to meaning, what is the meaning? 
So connecting with other people, that was another one. The the dance class did a few things. It got you got you moving. Um, connecting with other people. Connecting with other people. It non-verbally. Yeah, forced you to communicate outside of your intellect without rules. Little, some then, rules, but. And then the and then the rule bending and like. Rule bending, yes. I think like um, the, God, this is just a shout out to theater classes because they're so they're so good about taking um, social cues and then ignoring them. Like the right. you know, so you you have like improv or um, like they'll you know, in, in, in I took an acting class and they're like, okay. Do everything you just did, but now you're angry and you're going to display anger through this whole thing. Mm. Now it's the opposite. Now you're going to display sadness through this whole thing. And as for dudes, like we have lots of rules, right? right? You, you like you can't express emotion, or if you do, it can be anger in some contexts yes. in certain ways. But you certainly wouldn't reveal you're sad. You certainly wouldn't have random physical, unscripted physical contact with multiple people. Bingo. Right. Um, and you certainly wouldn't like make eye contact. God forbid. <laughs> you know, it, it'd be emotionally vulnerable for any length of time, uh, unless it was an accident. Mm-hmm. So, so all these, so all these things, right. And that's just enough to get you curious. And then you're, you get, you're like, huh, I want to know more about this. And this sort of, this is sort of whole different world of mental health that you start to pursue mm-hmm. because of just this. Just this taste of a different world. Yeah. Yeah, that dance pairing with learn, starting to take the psychology classes, like, it started to cross over. Um, There's a good book called uh, Range by David Epstein. talks about you can be the jack of all trades, and that's good because you're cross-training yourself. You never know what this one modality over here will take away over here on the other side of your mind. It's seemingly unrelated, but they connect. That's what was happening. That's... um. Um, first of all, shout out to the book Range. Second time someone's recommended I, I read it. If you haven't read it, you should read Range. Um, but yeah, so um, jump back, back over to my story and we'll come back here. But like I had a major who asked questions in different ways. And is the first time I heard someone ask like business business organization questions like business coaching questions to our organization when a mission would happen and we're doing the wrap up and the roll up and like, okay, how many enemy KIA did we have killed in action? How many enemy uh, POW did we have? How many enemies did we capture? Mm -hmm. What intelligence did we drive? Mm -hmm. He would ask things that were like, shake your understanding of what success looked like. He's like, Mm -hmm. what, how did this benefit us? Mm -hmm. How did what we did today make the nation of Afghanistan safer? Mm. How did we... The strategy. Yeah, 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 long-term, bigger vision. Mm. How did we uh, interrupt and impede the enemy's ability to conduct operations, not just today, but in a month or two months or six months? And like, it, it, if looking through that lens, you start to see like, oh, we have to do more than just wanton destruction of the enemy's assets. We yeah, have that's just tactics. We have to we have to actually we have to actually have purpose on what we're doing. Yes. And it, and it just you start asking different questions, it changes how you engage 
with your job and you're, you start to Good point. say like, okay, if we, if we move on this mission, it's not actually going to have a long-term impact. So let's wait, mm-hmm. let's wait, let's save our, let's save our helicopters for something that's worth it. That tactic won't feed the strategy. That's right. And, um, and so being able to, you know, use something context breaking, you know, and have a different, have a different mindset and lens to apply to an area that you're not yet familiar with, uh, that way. And so then you got into, was it an instant? Did you feel like, Oh, this is it. When you started to take psychology classes and no, <laughs> never zero switch flipping. This is what I'm talking about. Like it's an iterative process for a lot of this stuff. Some people get those aha moments, but I'm like, I run into a wall like 12 times and the 13th time I go, Oh, there's a door. Oh, let's see what's behind that. And then it's like, ah, I don't have to bang my head against the wall anymore. That's just me. Some people are a lot smarter than I am, and they just go, oh, there's a damn door, and they walk through it. But most of us, it's like, yeah, it's that failing forward, banging our heads. Like, will this time work? No. But bang, 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 bang. Oh, bing. Let's go down this path. This this seems right. Um, so I minored in dance and majored in psychology, and it was done. Uh... And then at that point, uh, I moved to Germany. <laughs> another hard right or left or whatever you want to talk about. And there's a whole other backstory to what was going on there. But. Well, so so I love the uh, so I love the era of frustration. I had a good conversation with my friend Scott talking about like being depressed in Germany. They ger- for, synchronicities. Germany does it. Just during Germany, they'll depress you. It's the okay. same weather as Oregon. It's cold. It's dark. It's rainy. It's gray. Look how many freaking philosophers and psychologists come from. Germany, Austria, Switzerland, bro. Yeah, there's something about that. Place. Yeah, and, and Gert. I love Gert. Goethe. 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 Is that Gert? No, when it says Goethe, it's Goethe. This is this is the cool thing about living in Germany. Learn, learn to pronounce things. Okay. Like it's not Nietzsche, it's Nietzsche. It's not Jung, it's Jung. Right, it's well, not Freud, it's Freud. Yeah, he's uh, this Hochdeutsch people. I'm a Bavarian. Yeah. I'm a Bavarian, so I get. I could, be, I could be lazy. <laughs> genau. <laughs> fish is what they called us. They're North Germans. Fish heads. Uh, fish heads. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Polar opposite of the the, the Bayern folk. Yes. Yeah, like the, it doesn't sound. It doesn't sound the same. When the counting, the numbers don't sound the same. Nope. It's softer in the north. Ich instead of Ich. <laughs> right. It's like uh, going. That's like coming here in Portland and going down to like the south and yeah. hearing a different accents. It's quite some similarities there. Yeah, that's right. They drink more. They they have they lazier R's. Yeah. Got the later hosen. Don't do that in the north. They make fun of. Them. Oh, I was talking about Georgia. You were right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. They got that down there too, probably. That they got the cowboy hats and stuff. That's Which right. Which is also cool. It is cool. Yeah. Uh, so. Okay, so the the point is is that you take a turn towards what you want, and then it doesn't instantly pay off, and that there's more frustration. Um, but along the way, uh, you when did you decide to go and get your master's? When I got back from Germany, uh, I was like, oh, need a job. And my girlfriend at the time, uh, her brother worked for Nike, and he got me a job at Nike. I started working there, and I was like, yeah, this is fun. But again, it wasn't. There was no purpose behind it. Like, it wasn't really scratching the itch. Um, then I remembered, oh, I have this degree in psychology. Let me go ahead and try to use it. And so I got a job working at um, an intensive treatment program for 
it was my part was for boys who had dual diagnosis, so they had um, all kinds of trauma, and then maybe some Asperger's or autism, like a lot of shit going on. It was like in a lockdown facility where I had to do like holds sometimes. It was oh, yeah. brutal. Really good work, but brutally sad. And um, I can get a little emotional just thinking about it. Like some of these kids, like putting them to bed at night, like these guys had the worst parents on earth, or no parents. And like they would just love it that you would sit there and tuck them into bed. Like mm-hmm. they never fucking got that. And that was the best part. You know, and they, you could just see the sadness, like going to these rooms where they're in a lockdown facility. Like when we got to take them on outings, it was just amazing. Yeah, they mm-hmm. got to leave, but that was time limited. Really good work, um, but I didn't pay shit. And I was like, okay, if I keep doing this, back to the money thing. Like, I like this, but I, I'm, I can't. As a single guy, I can live with 12 roommates for 10 years. Sure, but I don't want to do that. Would like to do the have a wife and kids thing. Uh, so then I thought, okay, well, you have to get a graduate degree. So I was really getting into meditation at the time. Just was curious and learning on my own. I literally typed into Google uh, meditation and master's degree in psychology, and two schools popped up, California School of Integral Studies and Naropa University. And I picked Naropa because you had to do meditation retreats at the end of the year, two-month-long one and one-week-long one. And it was intertwined, Buddhist psychology, all that stuff was intertwined with all the Western psych. And it was like, that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, I picked that one. I didn't apply for the other one. I was like, see what happens. Um, did the essay. Went down and interviewed. Um, pretty hard to get into. Uh, not super hard, but only 30 people each uh, year or whatever you get in. And you're with the same cohort through the three years, so you get really tight. And the first year, it's pretty high attrition rate. You lose like 10, at least 10 people, 5, 10 people. And that happened. Uh, and it drops a little bit, so it gets even tighter. Uh, and that was amazing. And then finished that, and then I started working. And you, before you get your license, you have to get your hours, so you're working for a mental health center. And I went back to my corrections past and started working for uh, the corrections world again. And my first job was group psychotherapy with repeat DUI offenders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the second hardest job I've ever had. These guys had no clue what they were doing. They're like, here's some like psychoeducational stuff, and there are 50 people in there. Um, go fix them. 50 people in a group with one facilitator? That is insane in the membrane. And so I just basically said, hey, fill these, this paperwork out. And then I just did the group psychotherapy. I was trained at Norbin, which, by the way, was fucking great. They yeah. really trained me well in group therapy. Yeah. And that shit worked. It was so hard with one person. I should have had two or three other therapists in there. But... Made it work really good. Getting my hours, again, no pay. A little bit better than before, but still no pay. Um, that's when I was stuck like living in like low-income housing and stuff. With mm-hmm. Really rough. But getting the hours. And then I worked at a halfway house. And then I worked in a jail, which is, to this day, besides doing private practice, was the best I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Working in a jail setting was amazing. Mm-hmm. Really, really powerful. What was important about the jail? I actually feel like I was doing something. And this program was really genius. It was a grant-funded position. So you work with them in the jail, and if they got out of jail and didn't go to prison, which all of them did, you know, if you go to jail, it's either you're waiting to go to prison or you had a short term, two years or under, you can't be in jail for longer than two years. 
somebody's got just had like repeat DUIs or drug offenses or something, domestic violence, and they got had a two-year sentence. And the problem is when people come out, if they don't have support, what do you think they're going to do? Go back to their supports, which are where they were. Yeah. So what do you think they're going to do? So we had a facility outside where they could come get therapy, and we had case managers who would help them get a job, housing, and help them. So they're getting the treatment and they're getting the uh, psychosocial stuff that they need. It was great. It worked. Um, so I did group therapy, individual therapy, and assessments in the jail. And I got really close with the deputies. I could walk into the modules by myself. The, the deputies would rather do that. Like, why do you go in there? It's fucking dangerous. And like, I felt safe. Like, my guys, if somebody did anything, they, would, they wouldn't hesitate. It was like a gang mentality. It was like, it felt a little bit too good. <laughs> I missed that squad mentality, you know? Sure. Like, that military feel I always wanted. I kind of felt that. Yeah, I can see why gang, like men form gangs. I totally can see why we do that, yeah. and uh, it was interesting. But I felt like it was really helping these guys and doing group therapy with men for the first time, because um, prior it was the DOI offenders was men and women. By the way, groups with men and women way harder than just men. Yeah, <laughs> like significantly harder. But with just dudes, it's easier, harder in some ways, but on balance easier. But I felt like it was actually helping people. What do you think the uh, the difficulty is, uh, co-ed? It kicks up family dyma- dynamics. So uh, projection, uh, pro- projective identification, all this stuff comes up. Like you remind my sister or my father. or um, When I'm in a family, I'm the one that's quiet. Or I yell and I fight. You know, it kicks all that stuff up. It will in men group, men's groups too, but it's... Like some guys, like, well, I can't say that to a woman, or I have to, you know, they, you do that dance you grew up with, but that's good because you can learn to do it in a healthy environment with a, with a therapist, or you, yeah. you know, you can, you can be open or vulnerable, the word we hate as men, in front of a woman, and she's not going to kick you in the balls. Watch. <laughs> it's okay. You can say what you mean, but it's a lot harder, and vice versa. Like, I'm not going to, a woman, I'm going to sit with guys who've always, like, treated me bad or beat me up. Like, I'm not going to do that. Or whatever dynamic comes up, it's it's way more soupy, way way more difficult, Jesus. but powerful, very powerful. So uh, you took a you took a turn from a dance class that led you to going overseas, that led you to um, operating back in the the world of psychology in different environments, whether it was with youth or people in jails, mm-hmm. and the more exposure you got difficult or easy, you know, fulfilling or not, you knew you were swimming in the right, right water. Correct. Yeah. I knew it was, this was gaining traction. I liked it. And then, uh, I noticed part of me was like, I want to go, I want to go all the way. I want, I want to do the PhD thing. It sets you apart. There's a legion amount of fair, uh, master's level or social worker therapists. Like 1% of people get PhDs in the world across the board. I was like, uh, maybe it was that part of me that wanted to be spec ops all my life. Well, I'm gonna do the fucking psychology version of spec ops. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get a PhD. So that's what led me to Pacifica Graduate Institute. And what screwed me was like uh, I should have been the clinical psychology program, but I did one that doesn't require you to uh, get a clinical psychology degree. You just get a PhD, but you're licensed at the master's level. It's like I just went in private practice. Had I done the clinical psych. One, I could have 
worked in the military. I'd be in the military right now as a clinical psychologist. Like mm. ten years ago, I would have already done it. Mm. But they don't. They don't allow it. You have to have to be a clinical psychologist or a social worker. There's no such thing as a master's level in the military. It makes no sense because it's an equivalent degree. Um, but I didn't know that. I had no idea. Because um, I thought I just wanted. I just want to be private practice. I don't want to do psychometric testing. I don't want to do teaching. That's what you get. As a clinical psychologist, I didn't want to do that stuff. So when you say it screwed you, it didn't screw you in terms of a ideology or content. It screwed Correct. you in terms of the 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 opportunity for uh, yeah service in a, a particular role in a particular branch. In the military. Yeah. Yes, I didn't know it would do that because I tried to go into the navy, um, uh, and then that's when I found out like oh, sorry. <laughs> It's so dumb. It's still dumb. And every recruiter I've talked to, they bang their heads against the wall. Like, this is, makes no sense. I've been talking to an army major recently, and she's like, I would take you right now. Literally take you right now. But The um, yeah, the, the military is... Um, I, I love the, the military's method for training and application because you get to do so much crazy shit with very what on the outside uh in you know outside of academia is considered very minimal training because everything is very practical so like if you take like a, a paramedic right what a paramedic does is something that you know you could do that that pieces of combat lifesavers do that army medics do and the combat lifesaver course is a week army medic course i think is 12 weeks uh, special forces medical uh, officer is like a year. Should be. Um, yeah. Or like PJs. That's the most badass medical. Your spec ops and your medical. I think they're the, I think they're trained the same one. I think it's JFK Special Warfare Center. The they have a, Center. A hospital. Yeah. That'd be a, aside from being a psychologist, that would be my second choice. Something like that. Yeah, they do um, field surgeries. Uh, just just radical shit. But on the outside. Like the like, you could walk into like the equivalent is this is why it's bizarre. So inside the military, you're doing crazy surgical level shit, um, and outside you're like a paramedic. Which paramedics, shout out to paramedics, like that's oh, yeah. that's real. Yeah. <laughs> like that's real work. It's just it's just so much more dirty and intense in the military, mm-hmm. and outside it's like um, a medic, like a a, a combat medic regardless of how much experience they have with trauma, mm. uh, would essentially have no role in, in civilian. Right. They might be able to be an ambulance driver. <laughs> I can <laughs> carry my M4 with me? They, <laughs> well, no, they just, but like the, 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 the work that you, you're, it's essentially paramedic work, but it has none of the minimum s- s- qualifications that like a paramedic has on the outside. Uh, so they couldn't get a job as an EMT. Right. That doesn't make any sense. And no, it makes zero sense. Like, which is like, is why so the service members get effed. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's, that's just why there's such a going inside and out. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the equal level of responsibility, it, it, responsibility does not equal what you're going to be doing on, on the, when you cross the civilian military barrier. Another problem we have. Yes, tra- transitions. Problems of transitions is another podcast we'll do. Yeah, trans rights is a big big concept for Miles. He really wants to <laughs> transition. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's all about he's all about supporting trans people and, and their struggles. Um, As and I do in this practice. But. That's that's right. That's right. Um, 
the the like the the conversation that we're we're highlighting is like you can get stuck in the miles was you know inside what he cares about but couldn't figure out how to get paid um i was doing what i was good at and uh, what i cared about but um i spent too much time on what i could get paid and not on the greater like picture in the, in the fitness industry and how i could apply my skills and it's really easy to get fixated and like are you good at this? Is this what the, you know, is this, there's, is there a role of this in the world? Is it a problem that needs to be solved? Um, or is it just a curiosity? And some people to like, um, to, to look at, or some ideas to, to research. We talked about the Ikigai circles. Um, Victor Frankl has a book, Man's Search for Meaning, which wow. is a f- quick read. It's only 180 pages. But uh, it's deep. <laughs> it's a big Brutal. one really good yeah really really good yeah it's a big one um and but in it he helps himself and holocaust survivors talk discover why they're on this planet and you know through his framework and it's very simple he's got a very simple rubric rubric which is essentially something you're here to do something that only you can do mm. and i really what i really love about that is is the fact that it's unique mm-hmm. you know it's it's not just to your strengths, to your passions, but it's unique to you. Nobody else can write your book. Nobody else can raise your kids. Nobody else can do what you, you're here to do something. And you have to, it's your job to discover it. So great book. Check it out. It's a, it'll make you a better person. Absolutely. Um, the uh, Trauma to Dharma, it's another book uh, that is great on finding your finding your dharma which is a, a whole um a whole what who's the author by the way trauma to dharma that's a great one um i'll look it up right now i have not read that one um but dharma is a word that it's been really popular over the last few years been co-opted a little bit but it translates to sacred duty or soul's purpose um, what else does it mean I'm going to add this to my Amazon wish list right now. Trauma to Dharma. It's a great title, by the way. Um, Azita Nahai. There she is. PhD. There you go, another PhD. Boom. Transform your pain into purpose. I love it. So... Trauma to Dharma, so sacred duty, like, your, the, the, what I love about the, your Dharma is it, your, you're on a, your spirit, your soul is on a journey that your body is only partly here for. Like, um, in the, my, my belief structure is if you're on the path of a warrior, you've chosen your soul has chosen all of the events in your life and everything your your who you are where you're at the 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 pains the failures the frustrations the successes have been chosen to grow you and grow your soul and you're here i am here to live out my life's purpose in response to the journey that my soul has already chosen and what do you think she means by the word dharma? Because that means different things in different 
Like Hinduism versus Buddhism versus the lay term? Um, I think she means, um, great question. Because in Buddhism it means like teachings or dreams. Um, I think that she means the, um, I, um, I think she, part of it is you're here to heal a wound that your soul has. That's why your soul chose the trauma that you were, you have endured. It becomes your dharma. That's correct. I like it. And it segues right into the Gary Shandling quote. Uh, he wrote this on a napkin and gave it to Judd Apatow, um, which was, give more, give what you didn't get, love more, let go of your old story. And this is right off of Healing the Inner Child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, whatever you didn't get growing up, whatever you didn't, the nurturing you didn't get is the nurturing you're here to give. Yeah. And that and that's how you get it. That's how you get it. That's how you get it. It's amazing, isn't it? And say that, why is it, tell me about love. Why is giving and gratitude and love, why is it as healing for the giver as it is the receiver? I think you should get out of yourself and your ego, what your ego thinks it needs. And it's always looking for someone else to give it to you rather than you actually just doing it. And by doing it, you experience it and you go, oh, that's it. And you go, oh, I could actually get this myself. And by the way, if you give that to other people, you're probably going to give it back. Get it back. So you're, there's a reciprocal. Yeah, it's not transactional, but you do it when no one's looking kind of a thing, not expecting anything, but it'll probably come back. But you can give it to yourself too, like self-talk and introspection, back to that again. Uh, but by giving it, you're doing the act and you get the feeling of what that feels like for the first time, perhaps, because you, you like getting back growing up in the 70s and 80s. Interesting time, but a rough time. Uh, shout out to all the late monos and Gen Xers out there. We didn't get a lot from our parents on balance because they didn't get that either. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, we've had, we've had to fill in that gap of like, what is it to do relationship to be a parent? Um, we had to do a lot of that for our parents because they didn't get from their parents. Like we got to, we had to tell our parents who they were rather than telling us who we are. And so we got to go give that to other people. If we didn't get a lot enough um, being seen or attention, well, let's let's give that to our significant others or our friends and see what that's like. And then in the doing, you get the feeling and you kind of get a taste of what that's like. And then you start to give it to yourself, whatever that looks like. That can take on a lot of forms. There's a um um, I think in nonviolent communication. Hmm. Um, Good book, Marshall Rosenberg. Uh, I think he he says that um, you know if you're if you're in a conflict with somebody, if you just seek to understand them, and then don't really worry about anything else. Yes, and drop your ego for a second. They're gonna, the person you're talking to is going to feel heard for the first time in a long time. It's gonna feel good. And they're going to have a sense of relief. Yes, relief. And that is reason enough to communicate that way. Because um, I think I remember, I mean, not think I remember, I remember the first time I was listened to hmm. as a kid. My grandfather would ask really good questions and care about the answers. And I remember the sense of relief that I had feeling very um, feeling understood 
Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know that I had a strong sense of justice um, until I voiced that to my grandfather because he was as- asking questions. Mm-hmm. So I learned that justice is really important to me. Mm-hmm. It feels good to be seen, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's... Um, uh, you mentioned um, we told our parents what they were instead of them telling us who we are or helping us understand or helping us understand who we are and I feel like that segues into the, the concept of identity and like the uh, as I have all these verbal pauses around identity there is a analogy of figuring out your identity is like playing the mafia game or where or is it the, mur- the, the murder game the mystery mur- where you have a bunch of people who are playing this game one of them is the murderer one uh, of them yeah. is the detective mm-hmm. one of them is people are witnesses but you don't know what you are but you have your you have your a name tag on your forehead <laughs> that's a good analogy and you have to pick up by how everyone is talking to you. Exactly. What your role, what, what your identity is. Are you the murderer? Are you the suspect? You know, or whatever. That's right. That's childhood. And that's and that's identity because a lot of times we don't think we're smart or stupid, fast or slow, strong or weak. People keep telling us we are the something, mm-hmm. and they only mean that that's compared to them. Correct. Right. Their reference, but but we pick up. We identify. We 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 have this. Our, we have a sticky, adhesive material on our soul, and we pick up those labels and we hold on to them. But we negative labels. It's shown studies shown that negative labels last longer than positive labels. So if someone says you're smart, as soon as you do a stupid thing, you kind of forget about it. Like you know you know, or you say well, well I'm I'm smart. This should be easy. I should be good at this, right? And we start to beat ourselves up. Mm-hmm. But um, but the identity thing, people keep telling us and treating us a certain way, and then we infer. So this is where a lot of the damage comes into play. Because kids, if your parents are fighting, or if things are going on, or there's dramatic changes, kids internalize a lot of things because you can't really, unless you explain it to them and help them process Correct. a an experience they think they're generating it yep because they're young they're egocentric at that age yeah they don't know how the world works mm-hmm. they don't know and so so a lot of times we think we're more powerful than we are and like you said we start to take care of our parents then we think you know we take care of other people we take care of our family in, a, in, a, in an emotional way and often an inappropriate way and then that creates codependency or enmeshment mm-hmm. you know or side, yeah, side, yeah side effects of enmeshment and uh, we have a hard time, you know, gelling or solidifying an identity that is unique to us, empowering, and and adjustable. You know, and we early on, at least for me, I had a fixed mindset. It's like I'm this kind of person. Everyone tells me I'm angry. I'm fucking angry. I must be an angry person. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a good book. Mindset. Carol Dweck. Dweck. Yeah. Yeah. Growth versus fixed mindset. Huge. Or that a long time ago. I'm finally. I'm glad she's blowing up right now. Like 
which has always been good. But again, so many Stanford professors, like Listener Huberman Lab, he talks about, he has all these professors on from Stanford, and they're like, oh, Carolyn Dweck went to Stanford? Like, so many good people came out of there. It's a great school. I mean, go Ducks, but Stanford's got a great school. Well, um, there, there's been some trash coming out of Stanford, too, so. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, like the football team or what? Well, no, we're good. <laughs> They were, they've been good and, uh, lately. Not, not recently. So nice. <laughs> yeah. um, so our identity is how everyone is like, you know, we pick up on this identity that we have. We don't know that we are, we can actually create it and we can change it. Um, it, it, but it, but it seems like, you know, especially early on, I think this is where a lot of our depression comes from when like, you know, me in the army, I don't like this. Like I'm, I'm supposed to be a tough, hard ass, angry kid. I actually didn't love being in the army and it, the part of the comp- competition I liked. Um, I, I love serving my country. I love the army's mission, but there was a lot of things I didn't understand because I'm around a bunch of 18, 19 year olds and we're all hyper masculine <laughs> and Fighting with each other no all the time. No prefrontal cortex yet. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I gel with all of this. Like, I don't, this is not super fun. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know that I could adjust my identity and I didn't understand that these things were not handed to me. I didn't create them and I could change them. Correct. So in terms of figuring out your own, your, your own identity, the role you wanted to play. Um, gosh, you're still working on this. So right now, um, you seem just from everything you've explained to me through a process of a painful process of elimination and falling down the stairs, mm-hmm. you seem like you've found your identity, your role, you're living your values. You are chasing your passions and curiosity, playing to your strengths. What, um, and you also are sort of feeling this sort of hungry soul sort of craving right now for something more. Mm-hmm. When you think about the Ikigai diagram, you're, what you're passionate about, what you're good at, so your strengths, um, what your financial opportunities are, what the world needs, or, you know, you know your, where, where do you feel like there's like, which one of those feels weakest or where, where do you feel like you're missing something or is it none of those? It's well, this, it's always a lifelong process. I think we think we're going to arrive somewhere and be done. I mean, this just keeps happening. <laughs> it's just these transitions come big, but I think they creep, but you, you always want to be learning and growing. And I may be in 20 years completely different who knows, or I might just have grown these out even more. Um, right now it just feels like there needs to be more, what I'm doing now, but adjacent, I need to scale up somehow. Like one version is doing a podcast like this. I've always thought about it. And what always gets in my way is shame and fear. It's, those are big ones. And for all of us, you know, fear is an obvious one, but that's a clue. Like, why am I so afraid of doing that? Maybe I should be doing that. And then shame, I'm not good enough. I'm an inherent black stain and I can't do it because I'm bad versus guilt, which is behavior-based, like, oh, I'm still a good person, and my behavior wasn't that great, I can you know, sort of judge that and, and remedy it. Shame is like, I'm bad, I don't even want to think about the thing that triggers that shame, I'm going to go hide in this pit. 
And one of my therapists said, like, that's a shame is a great way to avoid having to do your work. You can just go sit in that pit and not have to do anything. It hurts, but it hurts less than the perceived pain that you think is going to happen if you go out of shame and do the things you're going to do and get told you're bad. I'll feel this shit feeling of shame versus be told and be confirmed, yes, you are bad. That's even worse. You know, that's that's in the shadow, that's in the, the exile realm and internal family systems. Those are the core wounds. And my somewhat traumatic upbringing, you know, it's all relative. People had way worse upbringings than I did. Mine was wow, equivocation, apologizing. Good. <laughs> I, we all caught that on tape. There we go. We all got <laughs> it. And, and I don't want to disrespect my parents at all because I did the best I could, but, you know, divorce sucks and not having parents around enough sucks or having too much of one parent sucks. Um, I in, uh, generate a lot of shame and fear. You know, like if I go out here, I'm going to get confirmed that yes, you are bad. And so I've self-sabotaged a ton or avoided a ton or procrastinated a ton. And those things get in my way when I try to make a move. But again, like we talked about earlier, like you have to pick your pain. Do you want the pain of growth? and opportunity and like joy and like thriving in life. Like it's gonna take pain to get there, but that's much better than sitting in shame. That shit sucks. Which pain do you choose? And I've had it that's been hitting me over the head over and over. Like, bro, you're just you're not making moves. You're sitting in your shame. Like, hey you've done some things. Like on balance, you could call me successful. I've done some things and done interesting things. But again back to like the psyche beckoning you to do more, it's been hitting hard. And those come in the form of symptoms called depression, anxiety. Like it's, that's a symptom for a reason. We have to listen to that. And what we do in our culture is we like to anesthetize pain, right? If you bang your knee, automatically you start rubbing it, look down and you tend to it. Am I bleeding out? Did I break it? Like you do something. It's emotional pain. We go, la, 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 doesn't hurt. Or we obsess and go deep and we get stuck in it. So you're saying a lot here. Um, Occupational hazard, I'm sorry. No, it's good. <laughs> no, well, like, super dense. But I wanted to pick that apart because actually um, anesthetizing is, is good because we, I think, it's difficult. Okay, maybe Gary Vaynerchuk and Jocko and some people just grind. But he no, he doesn't. He surf. Surfing is how he detaches and gets he away. He detaches, yeah. He doesn't disconnect. He distances. So the difference is he is um it's not he's detaching, he's not disassociating. Correct. Great words. Yes. So Big what would, difference. Audience, what we mean by this is so it is okay to watch a movie, have a drink, oh, yeah. relax, get away. Not twenty four seven though. But when you're so th- those those things and I, I like the term anesthetize because it, it was specific to it's specific to a pain. You don't have to sit in the, your frustration and just work yourself to the bone, because like the the common th- th- uh, theory is like okay if I'm anxious about something start preparing. Well, you can't just like read books and journal and hang upside down and do crunches all the time. You have to let you have to relax, like truly let your brain go. And for some people, that's playing music or surfing or you know martial arts or whatever it is. Meditation. Um, but but it doesn't it doesn't like I am not of the mind that it has to be quote unquote healthy. Like I don't smoke pot, but if if 
some people smoke weed and use it as a, you know, you can overdo anything, but like, That's I'm fine. With, I'm fine with anything to of small measured, you know, specific use. I think that the problem is, is, as you said, is in America, America, we really, we binge watch the TV. Mm. We binge drink. We, mm. we, we, don't just want to get a moment of escape. We need to numb. We need, we need to, to numb. Yeah. We need to push down and repress yes. the things that we are that are coming up for us. Yes. And that magnifies the problem. It's trying to tell us something. What is that emotion trying to tell you? What's going on inside? What's the message? Shoot there's, the messenger. There's a message. Well, we, we, well, that's a whole other episode in how to interpret emotions and what they're for. Mm. But um, but that's right. We we want to avoid the, the discomfort of feeling it. We want to avoid the work of having to respond to it. There we go. So, uh, you're saying is that you're feeling some pressure. The the hose is kinked, and you're you're <laughs> feeling the 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 old wounds come up of not being enough and questioning your value and um, who am I to be you know sharing my ideas and thoughts and right. and this is um, and this is interrupting the flow. And like the hose is a perfect analogy because yes. then when you unkink the hose, it relieve the pressure mm-hmm. and then the power flows mm-hmm. naturally through that's the That's why I'm talking so much because it's letting it out. That's what, <laughs> that's what we want, man. That's what we want. And and like also like um, I want to go back to role because it's very like a lot of times we have passions and strengths and value that our role will not allow us to fully realize. And I'll give you an example. When I was a gym owner and I was a young trainer, I helped other trainers because like it was so hard for me to figure out how to do like there's a hundred thousand health coaches right now who have certifications and no clients because people really want to be in the health space and help people, but they don't know how to have the conversations, how to do things. So one of the things I always did when I was a young gym owner is trainers that didn't know what they were doing, I would let them intern for me for a while and take my spreadsheets, take my systems, take my contracts. I'd show them how to register a business and show them how to sell. I'd show them how to get into the game so they could play in the game mm-hmm. because it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I just wanted to do. And I wasn't a, I couldn't get paid. I wasn't getting paid for that. That was a role that was outside of the role that I had as a fitness coach, but it made me feel really good. Trailhead. And trailhead. Exactly. And then fast forward. So I was a, you know, I was a strength coach and I was a fitness coach and then the pandemic happened and I was so stuck in the session that I couldn't see how I could provide value outside of the session. Mm. And I couldn't have sessions anymore because we were shut down and uh, I was part of a bunch of uh, networking group, or, or uh, I was in a, a couple of professional groups for uh, coaches and trainers, and everybody was talking about remote coaching, to have them work on their nutrition, have them work on their home workouts. That's what the whole world was doing. So it's like everyone knows the conversation you're about to have with somebody. So it's like let's talk about what we can do. And and uh, I'd never sold over the phone. I'd never done a lot of things. I had had come. I had. Had, I've had some enrollment conversations over the phone, but nothing like I was about to have happened because I was going to spend months doing it. And so I got a, you know, I had a, a whiteboard in my office and then I, I wrote down a yes column and a no column. Hmm. And so the job, the job for me was to get on the phone with, with old clients, new clients, 
um, people from just cold traffic from Facebook and just see to have a 15 minute conversation with them to see if they wanted to start a program that we could only service over the phone or, you know, we would have a video conference call or something, um, once, once a week, once every two weeks. And I'd never done it. I had no idea what was going on. I just had a script and that was, that was it. And I just jumped into it and I got told no so many times, but guess what? My gym was closed. I had no, nothing else to do. I had no money. So, and I was stuck. So I had no choices. Mm-hmm. So I just stayed on the phone mm-hmm. and I fucking hated it. Right. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. And it's like the no, 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 no. I had so many no's chalked up in that column. And then I, after 19 conversations or 18 conversations, the 19th person said, yes, there you go. go for no. That's a book called that. I cried. I cried <laughs> so because it, it like, it, it revealed to me that this was possible. Yeah. We, we it could happen if I just stayed, if I just got better at this conversation, like I knew that we could do this or I, that it was a, an asset. But what it did is it expanded my role from an in-person strength coach to being a health and fitness coach who could, who could have uh, what I call remote offering or an online only offering. And so that expanded my world so much because you can service anybody, you know, on the planet with that and um, expanded my reach. And then I had to grow a new batch of skills and a new Mm. batch of ways I communicate. And I didn't have a choice, but, and I hated it. But once I started to get in a role, I actually realized like what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to get on a YouTube and teach a YouTube fitness class. I didn't want to do that. Plenty of that out there. Yeah, and there's plenty of that out there. It wasn't wasn't helping me. It, yeah, it wasn't helping. It just sucked the life out of me when we had to do that for the for the gym. I bet. So um, so so there was a completely different thing. So, but then I got to start to realize that there's many roles that I can fill and be and, and play to my strengths and to have the impact that I want. And you know, eventually, um, I, I realized that I could help other coaches. You know, set their businesses up and and let them play the game better. I could help people and all this. And then what this did was it made my my day, my week. It very it gave me a bunch of a, a palette of colors to choose from and how I could have an impact. And um and then a whole range of skills to develop. So instead of just you know uh just squats and deadlifts, then I could you know I had, then I had sprints and then I had you know, chin-ups, then I had, you know, interval, so I had all these different ways to use my skill set to, to, to have a deeper and more meaningful for me and for the, and for the population I'm serving. So that was a, that was a example of kind of what you're talking about is your role is limiting you and then pressure from the inside or from the outside creates a need to shift mm-hmm. and you'll get a new role or an additional role that um, will force you to grow in, comfort, in some fun ways and some not fun ways. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, that is, and that's the joy of this journey that your soul has chosen. Yes, sir. So um, we've talked about Viktor Frankl, Ikigai, talked about the Dharma, the Gary Shandling quote one more time. Give more, give what you didn't get, love more, let go of the old story. Uh, what your, what's your story? The old story is whatever reason you've sold yourself that you can't have what you want. 
But if you want to have a, a deeper conversation on that, Tony Schwartz has a book called The Power of Story, where he forces you to write your old story, yeah. which that one you'll cry a lot. Add to cart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a great book. I used to actually have a copy of my old story. It's, to, it's in one of my notebooks. And I read it sometimes to just... It's so bizarre and dystopian that it it's humbling to to understand what my mind my my frame of mind was when I wrote that. Journaling is hard but powerful. Absolutely, a good practice. Well, journaling with a purpose, like having a prompt, like that's worth it. Like I, I'm not somebody who just intuitively. Mm will write down all my problems in a journal, hmm. I need a prompt. Because i got a lot of problems, Miles. <laughs> yeah, there are two ways to... Yeah, there's a pre-association way, or you can journal with your parts and internal family systems. Or you can have ones that are prompts. There are plenty of great ones out there. Like I do the Daily Stoic one, Ryan Holidays. That's great. It's easy. A little paragraph, one in the morning, one in the evening. Oh, I, I've got that. I need to... Well, I need to it's work good. it out. Very good. So, um, if you're having a crisis of purpose, I mean, they're, they're, I could, this is, this is such an important conversation because, uh, having a role, like if you're alive and you're listening to this podcast, like you're, you have something to give. And if you're not contributing, serve, if you're not serving, uh, Muhammad Ali said, service is the rent we pay for the space we take up on earth. And I'm in full agreement with that. And you can feel that. Like you can feel like you don't have a place or a space if you're not contributing. Mm. And we need, this is, this, this ship needs all hands on deck. So, so uh, if you're not contributing, then you need to investigate why it's nobody else is going to come rescue you and tell you what your role is. We wish that someone would knock on your door and say, it's time, Miles. It's time. Here's your 10-point plan. Yeah, you have to train to fight the Russian now. <laughs> if only. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think, I don't know what the conversation for women is, but a man needs a purpose. Um, I, I've, I don't have a ton of experience with the, women, the female end of this, the women's end of this, but I've heard some w- women coaches say that a woman, sometimes a woman's purpose is to support their partner and their purpose or to be a mom, you know, and, and the, it's more of a nurturing role that's nurturing to us, you know, and obviously there's, you know, millions of women who own businesses and have very powerfully defined purposes, like specific to them. Great. Quite the opposite sometimes. Yeah. And, um, so I think, but I think everyone needs a purpose. And I think if you're a man, it's especially important you get clear on this because I feel like the pain of not being on purpose is destructive. Yeah, it sure hurts. And, um, I mean, you can see it. Yeah. I mean, just look at crime statistics, look at mental health statistics, school shooters, self-inflicted, yeah, mass shootings. Uh, the real, the real terrorism. Yeah. It's, there's a lot going on. Addictions. Yeah, so fucking get on purpose. God damn it. <laughs> Here are your orders. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and then I, you know, what are the strengths? What are you good at? 
your curiosity. What do you, what would you do if you, we didn't talk about values as much. Um, but that was one of the first, um, values for me gave me something to emulate. Um, the army has values. Um, and that was the first time that I'd heard values used in a, in a structured, um, conversation. Uh, the army values are, uh, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and you get busted here. Ooh, what is the, it starts with a P it's leadership is the acronym and the P is prudence, purpose, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, integrity, Okay. Maybe when you struggle with physical fitness, physical fitness. <laughs> Your personal thing. Yeah. Maybe because it's just so obvious. Just yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like what? Yeah. Um, and uh, the so the army values are pretty um, pretty great, pretty good, pretty generic, but it's also pretty obvious. Like when you are doing your job as a soldier in the United States Army, you're living all those almost all the time. Mm. Um, integrity just being for me congruence with your um, <laughs> with your stated values and stated purpose. Like so, integrity doesn't mean being honest all the time. It means fidelity to the reason you're there. So if sometimes that means telling an uncomfortable truth, you know, or uh, being in al- staying in alignment with your your the rest of your purpose and values, your mission, if you will. Um, and so that, but that's also pretty generic because anybody can be loyal. Everybody should, you know, should have a sense of duty. Although we, the kind of the, the meat of this conversation is that's unclear. Um, but when I was in therapy, when I was in crisis, um, I needed to get deeper clarity on my personal values. So I, we did, I did an exercise with my therapist where you pick somebody living or dead, fictional or um, not, you know, a real someone you know or don't know, but that you deeply admire and all the reasons you admire them and what you distill from that is values that are aspirational. And some of them you probably already have. Mm -hmm. And um, when I did that, I realized that generosity, compassion, and um, wisdom were three of the missing ones. And I began the work of integrating those and uh, it was um, it was very important to me. So, a values exercise. If you don't know what your values are, do them. They're not what you. Sh- they're not the values you. Sh- now, family is not one of my values. Like, it's not what you think they're they're supposed to be on there. It's what is really. What would you drop everything for? Hmm. There's people in my phone right now that if they called me and told me that I had to murder someone, I'd say, give me a name. <laughs> I'm not joking. Like, 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 they're, 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 they're like, I'm, I'm loyal. And like, um, so loyalty is a value. Yeah. Loyalty is a value. Um, what else? Um, integrity. <laughs> this is, this one, this one gets me into trouble. I, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of integrity. It's also inconvenient. Uh, highly <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's inconvenient because sometimes you have to do what people don't want you to do because of your integrity mm-hmm. um, holding people accountable is one of my role is that's my role 
And so sometimes that means that, um, not that I make them feel bad, but I remind them of their commitments and they, the consequences of their actions. And they don't like me for that. Sometimes some, I mean, they love me for that, but they also hate me for that. That's like being a parent. Exactly right. So, so these, your, your values are inconvenient for you, but they're more inconvenient to not have because Mm. when you know what you're about, then it makes the decision that if you have, you know, what your values are, your decision-making process is easy. If you don't know what your values are, then you're lo- you lose a lot of sleep unnecessarily. You lost. Yeah, exactly. Should I steal from the company? It is a million dollars. No, I mean, like, but like, like our leadership in America, corporate leadership, um, all around the world. I, I mean, there's so many examples of people who are, are willing to sell out, because it's very difficult to say no to life-changing amounts of money or fame or whatever. Uh, that you know, insert the 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 ego feed. Correct. You know, <laughs> when, <laughs> Stewie Griffin. I don't know why this is Family Guy. Yeah. Oh. Stewie's trying to bribe somebody. He's like, I'll give you anything you want: money, power, women, men. <laughs> <laughs> Best character in that show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, All of those things should make it it a little bit more clear what your purpose is. And if you're having trouble integrating or executing on any of those, call Miles. Just just give him him, send him an email, tell him you want to talk. He'll help you sort it. We'll sort it out. Anything to add before we wrap up in, in this one? One thing that came up, uh, so in the social work realm, I'm ripping this off from them. It's one of the things I actually do well. They have this thing called the magical question. You're trying to figure out purpose of meaning. And it's something like, what would you do every day, all day, if you knew you couldn't fail and money was no object, like you would just get paid? What would you do? And whatever comes to your mind doesn't matter. What image do you get or whatever it flash comes before your brain is a trailhead of what that might be. Like if you just thought of a motorcycle, great. Maybe it's something around motorcycles. Is it uh, being a tour guide or riding a motorcycle around the country or whatever, you know, that's a trailhead. But what would you do every day if you knew you couldn't fail and you couldn't get paid as much as you want or if money wasn't part of the factor of what, what would you do? That's such an important question. And a lot of times the answer is discounted. Absolutely. People say things that are short-sighted, like, uh, "Oh, I would, um, I'd get bottle service at the club every night." Like, you're gonna get tired of that. Yeah. Think more on this one. You're, that's that's the numbing that you want to do now because you're not in Latin. And and maybe your answer is, I'd spend a few months on the beach sipping a margarita. Cool. But you're gonna get bored of that too. So maybe the answer is, oh, I want to take a break. Right, maybe that's what's the most immediate for you. I want to relax. Cool, follow that. Then ask this question again. Virtual high five? No, regular high five. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just listening to a podcast. My, my one of my digital mentors, James Wedmore, he was talking about. Um, he said exactly that. It's like, you know, um, what if you're feeling burnout? He's like, rest, <laughs> rest. If you just don't want to do anything, take a pause. Go home. Like it. Mm-hmm. Go home, read a book, listen to listen to music, dance, 
get over it. It's like, don't grind your teeth until you, your eyes bleed. Yeah. Like, get over it. Just, just rest. That's what your body's asking for. So your brain is asking for. Your text. Yeah. Maybe you do need to rest. Yeah. I love it. Um, I love it. Great, great, great hack. What would you, what would you do if you couldn't fail and it was for fun and you didn't need anything from it? Yeah, money was no object. Or you could get paid as much as you want. Let's not let that be a, a roadblock. Just keep asking that question. See what comes up. I dig it. I dig it. Okay, cool. Well, I feel complete. Check. All right, man.